0: The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, remind you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And the truth is that being locked into the unchangeable liberates one to be able to explore and to adventure and to attempt all the things that you would be intimidated out of doing if you were in fact rootless and unanchored. All of a sudden, Knowing what the unchangeables are means you're free to try anything because you are firmly rooted and firmly anchored. And so what I like doing on this show is providing a strong acknowledgement of the timeless truths and our willingness to defend them against malevolent faddishness, masquerading as, you'll pardon me, progress, whose object is the utter destruction of our culture, the evisceration of civilization, and its replacement with, well, with nothing. And all we see from those people is an almost surreal blend of slavish adherence to the politically correct and a complete surrender to senseless vulgarity. The truth is that the secular fundamentalism that you and I see around us, you've got to recognize that it's a religion. It's a militant faith. It is a community of belief and shared values. Yes, I'm describing the left. It is a community of dogmas and heresies, a community of sacraments, a community of fanatics and saints and devils, horns and halos. It is a religion. And the important thing to remember is that you can never combat a religion with spreadsheets. A crusader will always defeat an accountant. And the entire language of the left revolves around the language of the social crusade. Everything they speak about is always the language of the social crusade. Morality, compassion, it's the children, it's values. But the reality is that it isn't anything like that. It is its own religious structure. And it can only be defeated by another religious structure. And that is why it is my conviction that conservatism severed from its Judeo-Christian biblical base, is doomed. I really do think it's quite hopeless. And part of the proof of that is how many secular conservatives simply ran for the hills when President Trump was elected in November 2016. Now, I don't altogether blame them. And I'm going to give you my reason why it is. Not out of historic interest, but I'm going to give you my reason for it because I think the reason can help you better understand how to structure your family, how to arrange and and conduct your marriage, how to raise your children, how to relate to your parents and siblings. How to relate to your money, your finances, your business, your career, your profession, your life, your livelihood, whatever it is, Uh, in all areas of family and finance, I believe that what I'm going to be imparting to you will be of great value. At least, I very, very much hope that is the case. So, where to begin? Well... Uh, we could start off with the fact that in uh, October 2016, uh, Barbara Bush, that is the mother of George W. Bush, and uh, she was the wife of President uh, H. Bush, uh, George H. Bush, and she um, she wrote a letter to her family asking them all to not support Donald Trump. And uh, As a matter of fact, several of the Bushes uh, actually voted for Hillary Clinton, some of them saying it was the first time they had ever not voted for a Republican candidate. So on the one hand, you can say, okay, fine, Uh, Barbara Bush didn't like the way her son Jeb Bush was treated by uh, Donald Trump, and so she decided to support Hillary Clinton rather than the man who humiliated her son. Right. Any parent can kind of understand that. Uh, is it wise? Is it part of leadership? Perhaps not. But as I say, the um, the world of secular conservatives, I think, is an empty world, because, my friends, conservatism is not a value. So much so that I have challenged repeatedly uh, for people to define what conservatism is. And most times all they can do is list me a list of politics. Oh, we're for smaller government. We're conservatives. We're for smaller government. Okay, fine. So are libertarians. In, in what way does that distinguish you? Uh, well, we're, uh, uh, we, we, we think that certain institutions of society should be conserved, Yeah, well, um, so does pretty much everybody. It's just that we all differ on which institutions. And so uh, conservatism is not a value. The only value that really worked, and I, I would submit that from the earliest days of the United States of America, religious conservatism, Christian conservatism is what worked because Christian conservatism means something. It is a value system. It's a Bible-based value system. And it is certainly exactly what the pilgrims brought over with them uh, from England, and then, of course, even more importantly, from Holland, where they worked together with a a remarkable English clergyman who was forced to flee to Holland as well uh, in the late 1500s. His name was Henry Ainsworth, and if you look at the writings of these people, you can see the Bible was paramount in their thinking, and the values of the Bible are essentially conservative values. What do I mean by that? Well, you could say that one of the distinctions between uh, conservatism and liberalism is that conservatism recognizes the importance of an external source of morality. And again, if you're a secular conservative, you're kind of stuck there because what is going to be your source of external morality? If you're a religious conservative, then the source of your your external source of morality is obviously God and the Bible. But uh If you are for liberalism, well, then your view is that there is never any external source of value. It's all within your heart. Liberalism is much more emotional. Conservatism is more um, uh, intellectual in a way. At any rate, if you run through everything you think of, as a conservative value, and everything you think of as a liberal value, then you're going to find that the majority of conservative values are (laughs) Bible-based, even to the point of the psalm which says the heart of the wise man tends to the right. And (laughs) there's a reason for that. Uh, You might think that that's just uh, a joke, and it, it, it is funny, but it isn't. It isn't because the right has always been associated with biblical values. And so it really goes back a very long time indeed. And uh, so would you say that the Bush family in November 2016 really thought that Hillary Clinton's um, record and policies Uh, suited them do you really think they agreed with those ideas no they remained republicans at heart but they were not going to vote for donald trump and they were by no means the only long-time established republicans who became never trumpers at that point um you remember colin powell right the great great colin powell well he supported hillary clinton or um How's about uh, uh, William Crystal, the son of, uh, of Irving Crystal? These are longtime conservatives. William Crystal was was going to I think did vote for Hillary rather than for uh, Trump. He became a never trumper. He was also the editor of The Weekly Standard, the magazine which closed largely because William Crystal basically made himself and his magazine irrelevant by turning it into a home for never-Trumpers. And again, normal people, people who, who were not long-time policy wonks and, uh, and political intellectuals, ordinary people said, this is madness. You know, why would you let Hillary Clinton in? I mean, she, she, we know how bad she is. At the very least, with Donald Trump, you know, maybe it'll be good, maybe it'll be bad, but it's not going to be worse than Hillary. So uh, people like John Pidhoritz and uh, Bill Kristol, uh, they really harmed their careers over this uh, never-Trump insanity, right? That was literally the end of the weekly standard. Uh, Because, and if you follow the story, if you know the people involved, as I do, and you know the Weekly Standard, that's what happened. He destroyed his magazine because of his unrelenting and uncompromising loathing of Donald Trump. Max Boot. Remember Max Boot? Max Boot was the foreign policy advisor to Marco Rubio. Max Boot was a writer for the Wall Street Journal. All of a sudden, uh, becomes a Democrat and supports Hillary, because... Donald Trump, impossible. Uh, David Frum. Uh, David Frum was a speechwriter for George, George W. Bush, becomes a Democrat uh, and votes for Hillary. Uh, Brett Stevens used to write for the Wall Street Journal, switched over to the New York Times. David Brooks used to be a conservative, supported Hillary. Uh, my dear friend Glenn Beck, whom I really do think the world of. Uh, Glenn Beck was a never-Trump. We actually debated it. On the Glenn Beck show, um, and you know he was—he uh, couldn't have been more more gracious. It was—it was—it was a debate of the kind of debate we'd like all political debates to be. Look, uh, today Glenn Beck has turned around considerably, and as far as I know, is a strong supporter of the president. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, Mona Charon is a, another writer who used to be a uh, Republican, switched. Uh, ben Shapiro, who's who's come back to things and and again Ben and his parents were members of my congregation in California for many years these are people I know very well Uh, and yet Ben was a uh, was rabidly anti-Trump although again uh, he's really come around a lot since he's seen what's happened since November 2016 Uh, Paul Wolfowitz I mean, there's a long list of these people and what's going on here well let me make uh, one thing clear uh, when you talk about the Weekly Standard people, some of the National Review people, uh, the Crystals and Pod Horitzes and Max Boot and David Frum and many of those people, Stephen Hayes, by the way, another one, the editor of the uh, – not the editor, the publisher of the Weekly Standard. Um, oh, oh, again, also unrelenting and uncompromising anti-Trumpism. So um, what what was going on there? Let me explain Uh, As soon as I remind you to visit the website, why do I remind you to visit the website? Well, I am like a, a storekeeper laying out my wares in my window. And uh, all I want is for you to walk down the sidewalk that my store is located on. I want you to look in at my window. Why? I certainly don't want you to buy anything from my store. If it's not useful to you or it, it doesn't please you in some way, obviously not. But if you don't know what I have laid out for your delight, well, then there's no possibility of us doing a mutually happy making deal. So I invite you to walk by my store at www.rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over there. And uh, at the website, you can contact me, you can write to me, which which Susan and I like. Uh, we, we read our mail we're very aware of it and many of you have discovered that we respond to it you can also look at past issues of thought tools and susan's musings and our very popular ask the rabbi column they're all there at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, you also see comments that people have made and our responses to those comments there's quite an active community there at our website and uh you can then also visit the store section, the e-commerce section, and there you will find about uh, 30 or 35 different resources that we have created for those of you who want to bring the benefits of ancient Jewish wisdom into your lives. And the four areas that we address are faith, family, finances, and friendship, Um questions you may have in any of those four areas, uh, guidance you need, specific strategies. All of those things are covered in the resources at the website. Now, again, if it's of no value to you or no use to you, that's great. That's fine. And, and you, you you share that in common with you know hundreds of millions of other human beings on the planet. But if you are among those, Uh, who feel that ancient Jewish wisdom can bring you some of the benefits that it has brought so many other people, then take a look. All of what you will find at our store is practical. It is simple. It is easy to follow, not always easy to accomplish, but the steps are all laid out for enhancing one's life in the area of friendships, finance, faith, and family. Family includes, obviously, marriage, child raising, and all those areas. And that's it. If you're looking for material on gardening, I'm sorry, not at com. If you're looking for material on homeopathy, no, I'm sorry, it just isn't there. Cannot help you. If you are looking uh, for material on do-it-yourself auto repair, sorry, we cannot help you. That's just not Part of what we provide guidance on, but in the areas of family, friendships, faith, and finance, that we do, and uh, that is at RabbiDanielAppin.com. You also take a look, by the way, at something on sale for listeners to this show right now called "The Perils of Profanity." Um, It is you are what you what you say, and uh, it is a program for becoming a more effective communicator. Again, read about it. Go to rabbidaniellappin.com, navigate on the tab to the store, and look for an audio product called Perils of Profanity. You are what you speak. I think you will find that uh, very useful indeed. Now, uh, with all these people, I'm sure that with all of them... If we had a chance to calmly and rationally sit down and say, uh, "Do you like what Donald Trump has done in the in the time since he was elected in November 2016, or do you think the country would be better off under Hillary Clinton?" You know, or or I might say to them, "Are you aware of what the stock market did in the last six weeks of 2016?" In other words, are you aware what happened to the economy the minute Donald Trump was elected president? Have you watched what's been happening since then? Do you think that if Hillary had been president, delivering to us more of Obama, do you think we'd be as well off as we are now? And I must tell you that I don't think a single one of the people I've named uh, would say, oh, yeah, I'm really, really sorry Hillary didn't. They're not going to say that. But their loathing of Donald Trump. Okay, why loathing of Donald Trump? Well, I'm going to tell you just a little bit here right now, and that is that uh, for many of the people I mentioned, uh, they, for most of their adult lives, have been significant influencers in Washington, D.C. They've been people who have shaped the popular debate. Uh, they've been people who have influenced political figures. And this goes back all the way to the, um, uh, to the Reagan White House. Now, you might say, well, what about when, uh, uh, when Bill Clinton was in power? Well, that's true. But these people nonetheless provided the voice of the opposition. Uh, eyes were upon them. Whenever Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton did something else that was reprehensible and and eye-popping, the newspapers of of the world turned to the Bill Crystals and the Brett Stevens and the David Brookses for their comments. Deep down, they all knew that the minute Donald Trump became president, that effectively ended their relevance— And uh, for men, being irrelevant is only one step better than being impotent. It's horrible, absolutely awful. And Donald Trump was making these men irrelevant because he was not going to need them, and they knew it. And the fact that he wasn't going to need them, they portrayed in negative terms— that Donald Trump doesn't get it, he doesn't think, he doesn't read, he doesn't know, simply because they couldn't tolerate the notion that their counsel was not going to be enlisted, that their advice was not going to be sought. And so for many of these people, their hatred of Trump sprung from that idea, the realization that being an outsider, being a non-politician, they... If if he wins, they become redundant and useless. If Jeb Bush would have won, Bill Kristol still had a career. If Marco Rubio would have won, um, David Brooks or David Frum would still have had careers. Max Boot would still be looked to, looked to for um, security and uh, foreign policy matters. The minute Donald Trump was appointed, they all knew it's goodbye. Donald Trump was simply never going to enlist the advice of these people. He had his own team of people that he would grow to trust. And so uh, that kind of feeling, that abhorrence for somebody who makes you irrelevant, redundant, ineffective, uh, that's a pretty strong thing. So that would account for a whole lot of it. But still, after all, these people are willing to vote for Hillary, policies that they've spent their entire careers working against, and policies they've believed to have been and are destructive to the future of the country, and they still go ahead and do it anyway. What is going on here? Well, I've got to tell you, um, I'm going to I'm going to turn to the Bible for a little bit of guidance and help here. And uh, I I want you to bear with me. You know, I sometimes issue various caveats and disclaimers. So, for instance, for the last two shows, I was heavily into uh, Boeing and aerospace and uh, uh, the economy, things like that. And several times I, and perhaps I shouldn't have done this, I made comments saying that I hope the women won't turn off, uh, keep listening. And uh, I did this because women in my own family tell me that their eyeballs glaze over when I start talking about scientific or technical uh, topics. But I'm happy to say that right there on my website at com, I received numerous letters from women. God bless you, ladies. You boosted my ego, and you uh, cheered me up considerably. large number of women wrote saying, hey, I'm a woman, and I enjoyed listening to your discussions on the Boeing 737 and what's happening with Airbus and the Chinese aerospace industry. And so all of that uh, much appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. But uh, another reason to issue a caveat or sort of a disclaimer is I'm going to say, look, I know that I have – many listeners who are not particularly uh, interested in the Bible. I have many listeners who are perhaps not even knowledgeable in any way whatsoever, or as I like to say, maybe I've even got listeners who don't know whether Leviticus is an aftershave lotion for men or a book. It's very possible, and I welcome and cherish every listener to this show. I really do. As you know, I I look at you all, in a sense, by looking at a world map with um, hundreds and hundreds of pins in it in not every country in the world, but an awful lot of countries. And so whether you're in the United States or Australia or China or Pakistan, yeah, would you believe Pakistan? Absolutely. Indonesia, the Philippines, Brazil, Argentina, um, uh, Chile, uh, Canada, need to say United Kingdom. Oh, I'm not going to carry on. It's I look. I get a kick out of it. I'm sorry. I don't mean to bore you. But uh, uh, at any at any rate, the um, the point I want to make is that it is from the Bible and ancient Jewish wisdom that pretty much everything I talk about is derived. Certainly, my views and opinions. Uh, predictions and prophecies and whatever, whatever else I'm, I'm discussing, that's where it comes from. Now, ordinarily, I don't go into the details of where it comes from. But it did occur to me that since the Bible is so central to civilization, the Bible has played such an absolutely inescapable role in the development of Western civilization. And we're talking about, this goes back, I mean, a thousand years. It goes back 2,000 years, really. And that makes it a pretty important book. Um, There's a guy who fascinates me. He's called The Venerable Bede, spelled B-E-D-E. Uh, or Bede the Elder. He was a monk in the northeast of England in uh, the year 700. (laughs) Do you know how long ago that is? Um, And one of the things he was known for was uh, a monumental book called The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Uh, He also translated uh, much of the Bible into English, Uh, Or old English is what it would have been in in the year 700, very, very early English. By the way, incomprehensible to those of us who know English today. But um, why I like the guy, I should tell you, by the way, is that when I was at rabbinic seminary, one of the seminaries I attended was in the northeast of England. And the crazy thing was that, and I only wish I knew about it at the time. I was such an ignoramus. I didn't know anything. I'm sitting in seminary studying. And I was totally unaware of the venerable Bede. I was totally unaware of this guy who played such a role in making the Bible not only accessible to England of the 8th century, but making the Bible that influential. The very fact that the pilgrims became grew of age in England and went from England eventually to North America, that is because the Venerable Bede laid the seeds for that in the year 700. I never even knew that while I am sitting, studying in my seminary in the northeast of England, it was literally a walk, uh, an afternoon walk would have taken me to the ruins of the monastery where the venerable Bede lived and wrote and worked and died and i must tell you for to the present day i feel i feel bad that i was i was so young and stupid that i never even i i didn't have a broad enough interest or knowledge to know what was going on i mean i literally could have visited the place where this remarkable man uh, laid the foundations You could say for the United States of America, the Bible centrality was unbelievable. Um, In uh, about 1300, um, there was a guy called Wycliffe who translated the Bible, and uh, this was one of the first modern English, reasonably modern English translations of the Bible. Uh, Again, I'd say it it would be Middle English by that time. Um, 1500. There was a guy called Tyndale, right? Uh, Tyndale was actually executed for translating the Bible, and if you you know you realise 1500, we're right there on the eve of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, whilst I'm no theologian, and people sometimes say to me, well, you know, you, you keep saying you're not interested in theology. What's, uh, what, what is the difference between what you do and, and what theology is? And I know, very, it's very, very simple. Uh, theology is all about what men think about God. And I'm, just, I'm just not that interested in what men think about God. But what I'm interested in is what God thinks about men. And that is the Bible and ancient Jewish wisdom. That's what it is. It's what God thinks about human beings. Now, why is it that the Bible is mocked and ridiculed and humiliated? Why is it that I almost feel that I have to um, give you an explanation, an apology, uh, an excuse for why it is that I turn to the Bible for information on this question of how could so many smart people like the Bush family and all the other names I mentioned, plus many, many, many more that I didn't even mention, who were Republicans, who nonetheless either voted for Hillary Clinton in November 2016 or didn't vote for uh, for for Donald Trump. Now, uh, you know, you'd say well, there, there must be many, many periodicals and journals and scholarly writings I could turn to for the explanation of this, but um, I choose to turn to the Bible, and and the whole reason that I have to give you a sort of Um, explanation about it, you know, gee, I'm I'm really, I'm going to quote from this book, the Bible, and I'm sort of apologetic about it, and I even sound a little weird about it. Well, it's because um, the Bible was translated out of the Hebrew, and it is one of those books which simply does not translate at all. No book translates well, I must tell you. Anybody who knows Russian and has read uh, Dostoevsky in Russian and in English will tell you exactly what I've told you, which uh, is that uh, Russian doesn't translate to English, not not well at all. Uh, how much of what Dostoevsky was talking about do you miss by reading it in English? I, I would say perhaps fifty percent, thirty-five to fifty percent. You miss really. And that's just a novel by a Russian, a great Russian writer. But when we're talking about the Bible, the Hebrew is absolutely essential because without the Hebrew, it turns into a sequence of um, antiquated and, and weird-sounding things, you know, Um, the the sacrifices of different animals and the wanderings of different forefathers, and and none of it seems to make any sense at all. So I thought I'd like to give you an example of how ancient Jewish wisdom uh, extracts biblical information that is of practical use to us in our families and in our finances. And and I I would recommend that... uh, even you know, even if you are not religious, uh, let's imagine you are not a religious Christian, let's imagine you're not a religious Jew. Um, you know, maybe you're a Muslim, maybe you're a Buddhist, maybe you're nothing at all. Maybe you, you don't believe in anything, but, you, uh, but but you still remain committed to a certain set of values that um, that, that has you reasonably comfortable listening to this show. Okay, fine. Uh, nonetheless, I would really recommend that you make sure that you own a copy of the Bible, right? No home is complete without a basic library. And another time I will tell you about, uh, you know, maybe 20 books, that it doesn't matter what your interests are, doesn't matter who you are, what you are, but if if you see yourself as a part of civilization— and you in some way believe that civilization is worth defending and worth protecting, then there is a collection of about 20 books or so that you ought to have in your library. And uh, these 20 absolute essentials of Western civilization include the Bible. So since I'm talking about the Bible today— Do yourself a favor. This is a a very inexpensive investment. Uh, Simply get yourself a copy of the Bible. So you got it. And uh, apart from anything else, it'll be useful as we walk through an understanding of what it was that was going on with these people who were such ardent foes of Donald Trump— People who were absolutely unshakable anti-Trumpers. What was going on, considering that uh, the policies that Hillary Clinton was certain to bring to the administration uh, were not policies that these people wanted or liked in any way whatsoever. Um, Okay, well... uh, so I'm I'm going to tell you about this. But first of all, I want to remind you again, and I don't mean to drive you to distraction or in any other way um, irritate you, but um, business is important. It's important that I provide a service to you that is of value. And uh, I do that through the store at my website, at which at the moment for a price that. I'm pretty sure he's negligible for everyone here. Um, it's, it's literally, if you, if you go a little overboard with your morning beverage at a national unnamed coffee chain, um, you would be spending the same as you would spend on acquiring a copy of The Perils of Profanity. You are what you speak. If you have any interest in becoming a more effective communicator. Uh, If you would like to be able to articulate your ideas, whether it's to your family members or whether to its business associates, if you'd like to become better at these things, then this is a trivial investment for a monumental outcome. The perils of profanity, you are what you speak. You will find that at RabbiDanielLappin.com and... uh, At RabbiDanielLappin.com, you go to the store, and you look for an audio product called The Perils of Profanity. And uh, you'll read about it there. See if I am correct, whether that is something that is useful to you or or any of the people in your orbit. Uh, But at any rate, please gaze into my store window. Have a look at the wares I have prepared for your pleasure and for the enhancing of your life over there at rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, so uh, we're looking at a book that has shaped Western civilization, a book whose influence on America uh, could hardly have been more profound. And um, we're going to deep dive into a specific section. We're looking at Genesis chapter 22, and uh, if you are fortunate enough to have a Bible in your possession, then by all means, um, stop the program right here for a moment and go along, get your copy. I think you'll enjoy seeing what I'm describing inside. We're talking about a book that has shaped Western civilization. Honestly, um, I don't know. And, again, I'm I'm by no means the only person saying this. Uh, you know, please don't ascribe it to my <laughs> idiosyncrasies. But um, it could be, by far and away, the most significant book. In what the world in this period of our history think of as Western civilization, or you may as well just call it what it is, which is civilization, because while I readily concede that there are many cultures around the world, about 5,000 to, to, to be somewhat specific, uh, there is only one civilization, And that's the one we're talking about. So head over to the book of Genesis. That's the first book of the Bible, uh, chapter 22. And uh, what we're looking at over here is uh, Abraham has just been told that he is asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, uh, time doesn't allow me to talk about why and what and wherefore here on that now. But what specifically interests me is that uh, this could not have been an easy time for Abraham. He's prayed, I mean, for, for his whole life, he wanted a son. And God finally gave him a son, Isaac. And now, with his dear, beloved son, he had another son, Ishmael. But Isaac was the special one. And uh, uh, God says to him in chapter 22, verse uh, 2, God says, take now your son. And Abraham says to himself, well, this doesn't sound like good news. I'm going to assume that God's talking about Ishmael. Your only son. Well, I mean, I, I realize that Ishmael's mother wasn't my wife. Uh, but still I mean I think of him as my son as well and then God says let there be no mistake I'm talking about Isaac and I want you to sacrifice him so Abraham goes ahead and uh, he's willing to do just that and finally we come to verse 3 and there it says in the English and Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey okay and um got ready to head off to where God wanted him to sacrifice Isaac. The phrase I'm talking about is Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Here's what's interesting. The phrase saddled his donkey is very rare throughout the five books of Moses. Very rare indeed. It's even more unusual being Abraham. Why? Because we already know that Abraham in his day was a very prominent, prestigious, wealthy man, and he had servants, he had employees. Do you really think that Abraham had to saddle his donkey by himself? Why does Scripture need to tell us that Abraham took himself down to early in the morning. It was probably still dark and cold, and he took himself to the smelly stables, and he himself lugged the heavy saddles and the leather um, straps, and he himself strapped all this together onto the donkeys so that he and his son Isaac could start their journey for the sacrifice. It's weird, is it not? This doesn't happen often, as I told you. The other place where it does happen is, and now you can skip ahead to the fourth book of Scripture, that would be the book of Numbers. And here, uh, we're looking at Numbers chapter 22. Okay, and interestingly enough, it was Genesis chapter 22, and now we're in Numbers 22. And uh, we're looking at verse 21. Now, here you've got a guy called Balaam. And Balaam, Um, Has been uh, hired to destroy the Israelites. Uh, King Balak of the Moabites has decided that he wants to eliminate Israel. Uh, And by the way, don't let anyone tell you that anti-Semitism began in 1948 when the State of Israel was founded, or anti-Semitism began when the Jews killed Jesus. Uh, Don't buy into any of that. Anti-Semitism goes back way earlier than that. And again, a topic for another time, but... uh, Balak wanted to exterminate the Jewish people, so he hired this wicked prophet called Balaam to do the job. And here we find uh, the phrase, Vayakom Bilam Baboker, and Bilaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey. Now again, the context makes it perfectly clear that like Abraham, the prophet Balaam was world-renowned. He was prestigious and prominent. This was not a man who was going to have to saddle his donkey himself. And yet, the wording of Scripture makes absolutely clear that he didn't summon a servant. He didn't order it to be done. He didn't issue a directive. Both Abraham and Balaam went and saddled their donkeys themselves. Why? Why? And this is how we study ancient Jewish wisdom and the Bible. I should point out, and I'll come back to that, I'll point out that although you heard me say in the English translation that both Abraham rose in the morning and Balaam rose in the morning, and although most English translations based on the King James Bible, which, by the way, was in the year 1611, that's a long time ago, And so a lot of people who shaped world history took the Bible far more seriously than our politicians and our pundits do today. That is their loss, and the sad consequences, unfortunately, affect us as well. But for the moment, just remember that uh, both Abraham and Balaam rose in the morning, although the Hebrew words are different. And both Abraham and Balaam saddled their donkeys. And in both cases, the Hebrew phrases are identical. And here is what ancient Jewish wisdom extracts and says look, uh, you don't find other people of, of prestige. Uh, saddling their own donkeys or even their own horses. There's something unusual going on here, and this is what it is. Love and hate equally distort a man's thinking. Have you got it? Have you got it? Both distort a man's thinking, love and hate. Strong emotions, perhaps the strongest emotions of which we're capable, right? Right? Love and hate both distort a person's thinking. It's nuts for Abraham to have saddled his donkey himself. But he was so obsessively in love with God that the minute God said, he couldn't stop himself. He didn't want anyone else to get it. He just wanted to run down and saddle the donkey and make all the arrangements himself. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across this. I know I'm susceptible to it in certain ways, but there are certain times where there are things that um, are important to you. I know somebody who spent quite a lot of money on an electric carving knife, and uh, whenever a a large cut of meat or or turkey comes to their table, um, he jumps up and says, I'll do the carving. And his wife, who ordinarily used to always do it, smiles indulgently because she knows just what's going on. He is utterly in love with this tool he bought, this electric knife, and he doesn't want anyone else to use it. He wants to use it himself. Love distorts a man's thinking. Uh, We certainly see it when it comes to women. Uh, We see it in, in terms of love of money. A man's thinking is distorted by love. But you know what? It's distorted just as much by hatred. Got it? It's distorted just as much by hatred. And that, my friends, is what we're dealing with here. Logically and rationally, every one of these people I've spoken about should have preferred Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton. Logically and rationally, it made all the sense in the world. If you care about the future of America, then you choose Donald Trump. But you see, they had a personal hatred for Donald Trump for various reasons, many different reasons. In the case of the Bushes, Donald Trump humiliated one of theirs, and the Bushes are a very close, very close family. I totally get it. I totally get it. If somebody humiliated a child of mine, I'd hate them. And I'd probably want to do anything I could to uh, prevent their success in any area. I totally get Barbara Bush and the rest of the Bush clan hating Donald Trump. And I even understand that that hatred distorted their thinking. These are people who, who love America, but they were willing to endure at least four years of the destructiveness of Hillary Clinton because of their hatred of Donald Trump. That is the story of saddling your own donkey out of love in the case of Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, or hatred in the case of Balaam, in the case of uh, Numbers 22. Love and hatred make you do weird things. And, my friends, you can hardly uh, miss the importance of this principle when it comes to your family and it comes to your career, when it comes to your money, and it comes to your family, surely you can see that love distorts your thinking. Have you ever seen somebody who just falls in love with an idea, with an investment, falls in love with, with some a piece of software, falls in love with a machine, and ends up harming his business because he allowed love to play a role? Don't Make important decisions while you're in the grip of love or hatred, okay? That is the lesson here, and it is so very significant. I'm going to ask you to take five minutes, maybe tonight, maybe early tomorrow morning. Whenever you do your days planning and summarizing, whenever you write up your journal, if you've taken my ideas to heart on that, Um, Spend just a few minutes and ask yourself, when in your life have you made a decision out of love? And I'm not talking about marrying your spouse, but made a decision out of love that where you were deeply emotionally committed to something and it wasn't a good decision. And another instance where you made a decision out of hatred didn't turn out to be a good decision. Really a very worthwhile little exercise. And uh, I said that uh, I would tell you a little bit more about the rising early in the morning stuff, and I'd like to do that as well because um, each and every one of us, I, I don't know the details for you. I only know the details for me, but what I do know is that each and every one of us has something that we want to be doing. There's something we just haven't got around to yet. There's something we've been procrastinating about. There's something that in each of our lives, right, and and you know what it is for your life, I know what it is for my life, but there is something important that if we could get done would enhance the quality of our lives. You know, maybe it's finishing off your taxes, or maybe it's getting started on an exercise program, or maybe it's trying to make a deal with somebody you've been negotiating with, whatever it is, um, it's something that you've been putting off, you've been procrastinating. In general, it's probably been something that you feel is unpleasant, because that is the way spiritual gravity works, that all the positive things that we could and should be doing are hard to do. And all the things that are fun and pleasurable to do are bad for us, like chocolate cream eclairs. In limitless number. So, um, how to, how, a way to deal with that, very practical. And by the way, um, perhaps the most valuable thing of the entire show today. Uh, coming right up you know well coming right up let me just remind you one more time the pod the uh website is com. the resource that's on sale for listeners to the show is called the perils of profanity so head over to com and read about it there if you would and now meanwhile um What I wanted to tell you was that there are a number of places throughout Scripture. Now, I've only um, looked at—I've only counted in the five books of Moses what's called the Torah— and um, I've only counted – actually, no. you know what? I'm wrong. I, I looked a little bit further afield as well. But I, I only found – I only looked for a few examples. What I was looking for were instances where the English translation says, and he rose in the morning and did something. And um, I, uh, I found a number of these I, found, I, I told you one about Abraham, I told you one about uh, Balaam, uh, and then there's Laban, Joseph, uh, Jacob's father-in-law, um, in uh, chapter, what is it, chapter 32, verse 1, I think, chapter 32, verse 1, uh, yeah, sure enough, and... Uh, and uh, where are we here? And Laban. And early in the morning, Laban rose up early in the morning and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them, etc., etc. And off he went. And uh, uh, and so it is. There, there are there examples all over the place. Um, all all of these cases of of somebody. Here's Moses in Exodus 34, chapter four. Uh, and Moses rose up early in the morning, and they went up to Mount Sinai, etc., etc. Um, what I was interested in was seeing whether the English translation makes any significant distinction between two separate and distinct Hebrew words that are used. Uh, in a number of the cases, it says, "vayashkem baboker, and that word "vayashkem." is very closely related to the Hebrew word shoulder. So it's it's getting up early, and it also is shoulder, somehow a combination. And then there's another word for getting up in the morning, and that's vayakom baboker, got up in the morning. and uh, And I thought it would be interesting for you to know about the separate, the specific cases where it uses one over the other uh Vayakum Babok here is somebody, you know, gets up in the morning, just no big deal, gets up, particularly if it's something that uh, he's fond of doing. And the best example there was uh, Balaam the prophet that we spoke about, right? Where Balaam the prophet actually gets up in the morning, nice and early, and, um, and what's his, what is his goal? Well, his goal is to destroy the Israel, the Israelites, and he's really happy to do it. There, it doesn't say vayashkem shoulder. He he got up, shouldering in the morning. It just says vayakum, Bilam just got up. So, in general, there are some places where it says he got up, just plain and simple. There are others that uses the word vayashkem which means he got up and shouldered. Okay, what does that mean? Well. In all the instances where the getting up in the morning was inconsequential, it was just the scriptures just telling us about something that happened in the morning, right? That that's all. There all there was to it. Um, we've got a, an example in the second book of Samuel uh, where David got up in the morning, chapter twenty-four, verse uh, verse eleven. And uh, David got up in the morning, David, he got up in the morning, it was, there was no big deal, he just got up and certain things then happened. But every time somebody's getting up in the morning and doing something very challenging, doing something hard, something that you ordinarily would procrastinate about, it uses the word Vayashkeim. Uh, This is a very beautiful instance, I think, I hope you agree, of ancient Jewish wisdom. Because if you're dependent on the English translation, everyone gets up in exactly the same way. You need to be aware that in the Hebrew, there are two different ways of getting up. There's an easy way of getting up where you are not getting up to face any formidable challenge that day. And then there's a hard way of getting up which embodies the word shoulder as in he shouldered a burden, right? And that form of getting up is what you do when you've got a tough and difficult task ahead of you. And so when Balaam got up, it uses the simple factual got up in the morning to to go and curse the Israelites. There was no challenge for him. He was perfectly happy to do it. He was also being well paid. But when Abraham got up early in the morning to sacrifice his son, that used the word Vayashchem, got up early, shouldered, because this was something he would have loved to have procrastinated on. It's something he would have loved to do. So, uh, my good friends, you eager devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Appencho, wherever you may be, please make a note of this fabulous lesson. It is something that has served Uh, the people who have poured lovingly over the pages of the Bible well for many, many, many centuries, and that is this. This thing we were talking about, this one thing you could be doing, this one thing you wish you could just get yourself to do, here's how to do it. Set yourself a date, like tomorrow or the next day, soon, on which it's going to happen. And on that day, get up two or three hours earlier than you ordinarily would. If you normally get up at eight, get up at five thirty. If you normally get up at seven, you know, get up at four thirty. If you normally get up at six, get up at four. Do the Vayash game trick. And write down the steps necessary, break it down, the things that you have to do one by one to achieve this task about which you've been procrastinating. And uh, set yourself on paper. This is what I do when I get up at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock. I'm getting up very early this day. My friends, what's going on here is that the creator who knows us better than anybody, the creator created us. To respond to a spirit of ceremonial urgency. And when we set ourselves a task and we honor it by a particularly early rising, we actually do it, we actually get it done. This is an immensely powerful strategy. And I would love to hear from you. Yes, you write to us by going to rabbidanielappen.com and clicking on the contact us tab. Uh, I would truly love to hear how this has worked for you. Uh, When I've taught this for various seminars and speeches, I've taught it at a number of churches around the country, Uh, it's something I teach to my coaching clients. These principles, I I can't tell you what astounding testimonials I get back from people who talk about it literally changed their lives because very often the one thing you're procrastinating about is something that really could impact your life, change its direction and move yourself onto a new plateau. But the more you procrastinate, the more procrastination becomes a part of your being and the more natural and normal it is to just ignore it and push it off for another day. But making an early rise, doing the 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 trick of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Tough thing to do, unpleasant task, something you've been trying to avoid. Get up early in the morning and set yourself the first few hours of that day the accomplishing of that particular task. Do it. You will thank me, and I will delight and cherish those thanks because it'll be yet one more example of where I have been blessed to bring a blessing into your lives. So go ahead, do it. And each and every one of you, everyone has something that needs to be done. So pick a day very soon. Don't procrastinate. Don't put off the choosing of the day. Choose the day. Set it in stone on your calendar. Block out those first few hours of the day after you rise early and make it the time to tackle this project that you have been trying to avoid. Don't forget to write to me and tell me what happens, okay? I, I love hearing from you. My friends, that is as far as we go for today. This is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I am your rabbi wishing you good times in the week ahead, good times with your family, with your friends, good times with your faith, and good times with your finances right? These things bring us happiness. Our families, our money, our friendships, and yes, our connection with the Creator. All of that in the week ahead. Enjoy. Have a great week. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.